Good morning. Our next case is uh, Duke Energy Carolinas LLC versus uh, Kaiser et al. And we will hear from the appellant. May it please the court, Chris Browning for the appellant Duke Energy. I will be arguing initially, and then we'll turn the podium over to two different attorneys, Mr. Childers and Mr. Parker, who will give you the perspective of two different groups of homeowners that are affected by the Court of Appeals opinion. So in short, I will sit down when there is 12 minutes remaining on the time clock, and I hope to get back up here with five minutes uh, remaining for rebuttal. Now, I would like to focus on three key ways that the Court of Appeals erred. First, the Court of Appeals uh, failed. Its decision does not comply with the plain and unambiguous language of the lease agreement, or the easement agreement. That easement gives Duke Energy absolute water rights and the right to treat the submerged property in any manner deemed necessary or desirable by Duke Energy. Second, the Court of Appeals erred in concluding that Duke Energy was not directly benefited by the shoreline management program that is at issue. That program facilitates the use of the lake for recreational purposes, which is a direct requirement of the FERC license for this facility. And third, the Court of Appeals decision erred in ignoring a black letter law. Um, the black letter law that in construing an instrument, a contract, the plain and unambiguous language controls and that cannot be altered based upon extrinsic evidence. Extrinsic evidence was considered <coughs> And it should not have been in this case. Now, before should we be involved here at all, um, should we should we be involved here at all uh, on that matter of Lake Norman being navigable? Your Honor, I, I would prefer to defer to the briefs on that. Um, in the interest of time, the navigability of Lake Lake Norman is set out in our briefs. We think the Court of Appeals articulated the standard incorrectly. But given the, the issues that we need to deal with that are directly applicable as opposed to an issue on remand, uh, I would be glad to address navigability, but my preference is to rely upon the briefs, if that's fine. Now, before I talk about these three key points, I think it's important to briefly discuss the facts as to why Duke Energy was forced to file this lawsuit. For over 55 years, the Kaisers honored the easement agreement that they had entered into. Then in 2015, as a result of drought conditions, the lake level receded, and the Kaisers proceeded to erect a retaining wall and to backfill behind that, adding approximately 2,445 feet, square feet, to their lot size. That, of course, ate into the size of the lake. It was inconsistent with Duke's easement rights. And when they refused, the Kaisers refused to take down that retaining wall, when they ignored the notice of violation issued by the Department of Environmental Quality, Duke had no choice but to file this action. And what happened? Well, the Kaisers proceeded to bring these claims that Duke's shoreline management program was not applicable to them, that we did not have the right to use our easement to protect the interest of the lake and the use of the lake for recreational purposes. As a result, they brought a lawsuit, not only counterclaims against us, but brought in third-party claims against innocent landowners. And it is truly ironic. I urge this court to look closely 
at the record at page 222 to 224, there you will see pictures of a house that Mr. Parker will discuss where in 1965, the Kaiser family leased lot 25 of Kaiser Island to a family. The next year, that family built a cottage on the submerged property. Then after that, the, in uh, 1989, Mr. Parker's clients purchased that property, pur purchased the appurtenance from the Flower family who had built it, and had purchased fee simple from the Kaisers. So for decades, this house has, it, has existed directly across from the Kaisers, and then the Kaisers bring this, this counterclaim to say that they should be paid twice for the uh, water rights that they granted Duke Energy. Once they were paid originally, back in 1961, for uh, the right, a very broad easement. Now they are trying to extract a windfall from the um, Smiths and other property owners. It's just not right. Now, can, can, can we turn to the uh, unambiguous language absolutely. of the easement? And uh, before we get into the express language, the easement is not just to Duke Power. It's not even to, just to Duke Power and, and successors, but it's to Duke Power and assigns. What should we take from the fact that this easement was granting to Duke Power the authority to make assignments of it? Well, Your Honor, I think um, in all candor, I read that language as uh, that Duke Energy and its successor entities. I think the, and I'd really rather focus on the broad language of the easement. I, I appreciate your point, but I think the cleaner, crisper way to rule in our favor would be to look at the plain language, which is absolute water rights. And as I said, to treat the sad 280.4 acres more or less in any manner deemed necessary or desirable by Duke Power Company. Of course, Duke Energy would stand as an assign of Duke Power Company because of the corporate transactions over the years. But here, Duke negotiated for and obtained extremely broad easement rights. Uh, you can't get much broader than any manner you, uh, necessary or desirable. Moreover, that was essential for the operation of this uh, Lake Norman, this hydroelectric facility. In 1958, uh, when Duke got its license, for 50 years, it had to contemplate regulations, requirements, technical changes that would be in place through 2008. And moreover, you don't build a dam like this, this sort of mammoth system, without recognizing that you're probably operating it for 100 years or 200 years. You have to have the flexibility to manage that lake bed appropriately. That's what it, it negotiated for. That's what it paid for. And um, that needs to be uh, honored here. And, and think about it. Lake Norman is the largest lake in the state. Its shoreline is 520 miles. It has to adjust um, throughout the course of that 100 or 200 years to provide uh, recreational purposes for the lake, power generation, and preserving the environment. Council, so um, the Court of Appeals in its decision uh, asserted that reading the easement as broadly as you would have this court read it essentially turns Duke's interest into a uh, fee simple interest uh, do you agree with that, and, and if not, why? No, I do not agree with that at all. That it is, um, they retain certain fee simple rights, but 
they also gave Duke an extremely broad easement. Now let's look at the bundle of rights that the Kaisers retained. They retained the right that if this uh, system, the dam, were never built, they would continue to own that 280.4 acres in fee simple. Moreover, if the uh, dam were not built to its intended height because of regulatory requirements, because of financial reasons, because of unanticipated environmental issues when they started building that dam, the water would not have risen to the 760-foot level. So the Kaisers would still continue to have use subject to Duke's easement for uh, the extra area on their property if the dam were not as high. Uh, moreover... And to follow up on, on Justice Down's yes. question, su suppose that we said it did, that the plain language of the easement effectively was a fee simple conveyance. Does that render it the language ambiguous, which Absolutely. seems to me to be the reasoning of the Court of Appeals? Absolutely not, Your Honor. It doesn't render it um, ambiguous. It is a, whether you call this a fee simple to Duke or an easement, uh, it's still the same result. Duke has the right to do what it needs to do to operate this reservoir system. Now, my personal preference is the parties used the term easement, they gave broad rights, they, the Kaisers retained certain, a substantial bundle of rights as a result of having fee simple, not the least of which is everything continues to have the Kaiser name on it. And if that's important to someone to have a transfer as a uh, easement as opposed to fee simple, Duke Energy does its absolute best to work with the prop property owners and come to an acceptable resolution. Now, the Kaiser family is trying to, to punish Duke Energy for accommodating them. Uh, uh, Counselor, um, may I direct your attention back to the literal words of the, the easement? Because yes. you said you wanted to talk about that. And this is in that, that first paragraph after witnesses. Um, what do you make of the fact that when we're reading through this, uh, in your brief, you uh, focus on the absolute water rights, and then you, you go to or you argue to treat the acres more or less in any manner deemed necessary and desirable. Um, the, there's no comma, and I know this sounds very picky, but when you actually look at a, a legal document, uh, the punctuation matters. Uh, there's no comma between grade and and, uh, which could be interpreted to mean that to treat these acres relates to the part before that, the right to clear, keep, clear, and all the timber, underbrush, vegetation, and buildings, that it relates to that in a more limited fashion than in the broader fashion that, with which you argue. Could you please address that for me? Yes, Your Honor. If we are going to look at grammatical construction and trying to figure out the party's intent, I would point out that the phrase is actually antegrade, antitreat. Um, so that would eliminate the need for the comma that you're referring to there. I think it is clear that at a minimum that Duke has a series of rights to operate this reservoir, and that is that includes the right to treat this um, uh, property um, in any, the submerged land, in any manner deemed necessary or appropriate. And well, so I understand your argument, sir, but when you look at it, there's a comma at the end where it says, and to grade and to treat. Uh, it could be uh, interpreted that the to treat in any manner deemed necessary and desirable that one way of looking at this, it only relates to grade because there's a comma before the end there, um, uh, as a, and maybe not with respect to the other part, but just that. Um, would, would you please address that for me? Yes, Your Honor. I think the phrase um, uh, and to grade and to treat said 280.4 acres more or less in any manner deemed necessary or desirable by Duke Power Company. 
I, I think the only fair construction of that is you have the right to grade and you also have the right to treat the property in any manner deemed necessary or appropriate. I don't think that the parties intended that this only applies to grade and treat together. But, that sir, if this is an unambiguous document, why would we get into the intention, as the Court of Appeals did, that I believe you've argued that was not appropriate for them to do? Well, the Court of Appeals itself said that the language of the easement was unambiguous, which is, I think, paragraph 22 of the Court of Appeals' opinion off the top of my head. Um, but here you have to consider the fact that this is extremely broad language, absolute water rights. And when you go on to read the language to treat the submerged property um, in any manner deemed necessary or desirable, that is consistent with the circumstances by which this easement was applied. And, and sir, so you're pointing, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so when you say the circumstances that they were required, are you also including the fact that this has uh, been, um, uh, been out there for what, I believe you said 50, 55 years? The, uh, it is, the easement was acquired in 1961, so yes, more than 60 years. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you. What would you have to say to the uh, size <coughs> position that Duke's operating in such a way as to take the Kaiser's property without just compensation? Well, I think what the Kaiser's are seeking is a windfall here, that Duke negotiated and obtained the right to operate this uh, hydroelectric facility, and that is being taken away from them because of the, the fact that, that the Court of Appeals erred and read into the language something that is not there, is not appropriate, um, and it's harmful to, for Duke Energy to pay twice for this easement, but it's, and it's a windfall for the uh, Kaisers if they have to pay twice, but I also remind the Court that if we're having to pay twice, that goes into the used and useful property of Duke Energy that gets built into the rate base, which is then paid by uh, utility customers. And that is just not right. So if I back, may. Yeah, I, I know your time is drawing near, but going back to Justice Deese's question in terms yes. of looking at the liberality of this easement relative to uh, the fee simple aspect of it, uh, is it your position that the easement is so tantamount to being fee simple that still uh, there is not a taking uh, by Duke uh, in terms of what you're saying would be nonetheless a windfall. No, there is no taking by Duke that the easement rights are broad enough. There are rights that are retained by the Kaisers. And if I may, turn the podium over to my uh, co-counsel. Please, the court. I'm Mark Childers. I represent uh, a number of the, the homeowners. Mr. Parker uh, represents some others. Um, we have two points today that we'd like to stress to the court. Uh, those being first, the homeowners docks and their shoreline improvements do not overburden the easement beyond the party's original intent. And secondly, the homeowners are not strangers to this easement because it's in their chain of title. Uh, turning to the first point, the Kaiser's behavior following the grant of the easement shows that they intended that docks and shoreline improvements would extend from the Kaiser upland, now my client's property, uh, onto the submerged property. Um, the Kaisers have admitted in their pleadings that the submerged property is part of Duke's hydroelectric project that's governed by the easement and uh, Duke's licensure from, from FERC. But it's important to note that, of course, the value of waterfront lots in the marketplace hinges upon being able to access the water from them. Uh, the subdivision maps, which the Kaisers prepared and started preparing not even a year after the easement uh, was granted, uh, show that the Kaiser upland was developed with what I would call panhandle lots with, that created actually nine more waterfront lots than w one might typically think. There's a, 
narrow frontage 25 foot lots next to 75 foot frontage lots. And on the plat itself, on uh, phase one of Kaiser Island, one of those 25 foot strips actually bears an exemplar uh, designation as access corridor. On the phase two map, there are three access corridors that are designed to give access to off-water lots. So it would seem uh, incongruous that the, 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 uh, you'd give off-water lots more rights to the water than you would give waterfront owners. So the content of the maps themselves demonstrate what the uh, party's intent was. Also on the maps, at least eight different times on three plats, the adjacent property to the upland lot says Lake Norman. It doesn't say Kaiser's property. The map itself says that these lots uh, border on Lake Norman. As early as 1963, there had been a dock constructed out there before the maps even went on record, before the lake even finished filling up. By the time the Kaisers actually put the map on record, numerous docks existed. Kaiser's never put any restrictive covenants on uh, record speaking about others' rights to the submerged property. Uh, the deeds don't reflect that. And in the 60 years since then, until this lawsuit came along, no one associated with the Kaiser's contacted any lot owners about permission, attempted to stop anyone uh, from accessing the property, uh, or set out any ropes or impediments, put up signs, tried to prosecute trespassers, and so that, that, that those indicia of their original intent are very clear uh, from, from the public record and from the record in this case. Our second point is the homeowners are not strangers to this easement because it's in their chain. The original easement contemplated two circumstances, the creation of a lake and the fact that the lake might spill its banks and flood the upland property. Both components are expressed in the same easement. They're both in the homeowner's chain of title. And the flowage easement benefits our client's property by making it waterfront property. And the uh, flood easement um, encumbers it. And so there would be no need for a flood easement if you didn't have the flowage easement. Thank you. I will yield the rest of my time to Mr. Parker. I please the court. I'm David Parker from the Arnold County Bar. I represent the third parties, uh, Schmidt and Shepard. Uh, there's an intersection between the public trust doctrine and repairing and rights at the water's edge. Justice Morgan, your question about navigability is incorporated in that intersection. Uh, there is a photograph that was mentioned by Mr. Browning at record page 222, and it shows uh, I wanted to use a screen, but I couldn't. It, it looks like this. It's a picture of the, uh, the Schmidt's house sitting up on stilts in Lake Norman, uh, and it's been there since the 60s. They bought the, uh, bought the house in 1981 uh, with this thing sitting out in the lake. Uh, it's part of the appurtenances that are included in the lease uh, and, in the, and in the deed. Um, navigability... Uh, is is established by statute for Lake Norman. There are two statutes that have to do with with Lake Norman. Uh, one of them has that are that are in the books. One of them has to do with don't violate the no wake zone. That's in 75A dash dash 14.1. And then the Lake Norman Marine Commission was established as well. Uh, dealing with the lake and referring to uh, the contours. That's in 1969, Session Law, Chapter 1089. So we think that, they're, that they've been established by statute. There's no contest as to the issues, uh, as to the factual issues in this case. As a matter of fact, both parties submitted photographs of the Schmidt's house sitting out over the water. And if you look in my brief at page 15, actually see an aerial photo uh, of the Schmidt's house right across the cove from the Kaisers. 
So when you get into the aspects of adverse possession, this house was built. I mean, my, my folks bought the house in 1981. The suit was brought in 2017. We're way more than Chapter 1-40's 20 years. Uh, so adverse possession kicked in a long time before this, this thing was brought uh, before the court. Um, and, and frankly, Your Honor, the, uh, honors, unless there are questions, that's, that's what I've got to say to you all, and I appreciate you listening to me. Thank you, Counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the Court, David Redding uh, for the Kaisers. My co-counsel, Mr. McTeer, Tom McTeer, is prepared to argue about navigability issues with regard to the public use doctrine and riparian rights, and I'll yield some time to him uh, if necessary to do so. Uh, Court of Appeals took up the question, which it said had never been squarely addressed in North Carolina law, as to whether or not an easement that gets as close as you can to transferring fee simple, whether or not there's a restriction that keeps that easement holder, the dominant tenement, from conveying those rights, somehow allowing third parties who are strangers to the agreement to, to use those rights. So that's what the Court of Appeals took up. It's, it was relying on love and be crisp, for the premise that it, that's, there's a limitation, and love in that limitation was to another parcel, another dominant tenement, not another person. So that's my, my, my initial square. question. There would be why would courts need to take this up as a matter of common law when we have freedom of contract in the convey in these conveyances? Why can't parties identify those? Answer that question in the language of the conveyance. They can, and I believe that they have in this conveyance, because in this conveyance, in this easement, there's no mention whatsoever of the third parties. The third parties, either generally or specifically, are not mentioned. There's no indication that there was intent that third parties who are strangers to the agreement would be allowed to, to burden the servient tenement, which is my client. So it's, it's not there. So I'd, I'd agree on contractual privilege, principles, you still find the same thing. And I, that, that's why I believe the Court of Appeals took it up, because this is a unique easement. I'll agree with that. The way the Court of Appeals read it uh, was that it gets as close as you can possibly get. It even says you could make an argument that it is fee simple, but they declined to accept that argument. So that The easement itself says assigns. It does. I agree with counsel for Duke that that means Duke's assigns. No, it means successor means what comes after Duke. Assigns is something different than successor. How would you distinguish between those two terms, given each their full meaning? I would do it in the same way that the uh, Court of Appeals did. The Court of Appeals said that Duke continues to exercise its rights under the easements and has not granted or conveyed any of those rights to third parties. That's at, uh, at page 11. And then said Duke did not assign its rights under the easements to the third parties. So the Court of Appeals did take up that issue. It's possible, but that's not what happened here. So that's not really a question that the Court of Appeals had to answer. If your theory is correct, when was the first time that um, an encroachment or a trespass occurred over the rights you maintain were retained by the Kaisers? As a legal matter, or trespass, it didn't happen until the filing of the third-party complaint. Because up until that time, the use was permissive. So that trespass did so, not occur. So that can you point to any uh, document that shows uh, in this record of title that the Kaisers uh, were anticipating that uh, uh, even though Duke uh, had allowed these trespasses to occur, that uh, they were uh, attempting to make it permissive as opposed to, uh, uh, or in any way, contesting what was occurring. So the, I would kind of flip it the other way and say permissive use doesn't But, but I get to ask the question. Sure. But permissive use wouldn't require a document. There, and there is no document that in the record that says, third parties, you can use this property. So the no legal wrong occurred when the trespass occurred, right? I agree. Okay. Yes, sir. So when was the first time? that any that the record indicates that any uh, dock or uh, other uh, 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 incursion into these rights, when did that first occur? 
Well, the record would say early in the 60s. The record would say that's when the docks appeared. But I would still contend that that's not a trespass if it's permitted by the owners, by the Kaisers, which it was. Is there anything in the record that indicates the Kaisers sought permission to build any of their docks from Duke or any of its uh, it's, uh, it's in the entities. record that, the, that Mr. Uh, Michael Kaiser and Robin Kaiser at some point got a, a permit to do so. Why? Because Duke has, under the FERC license, the authority to grant permission to build a dock. But that's different than having the right to do so as a legal matter over the property of someone who is not Duke. So the great majority of owners, the record shows, the great majority of owners of the lake bed is Duke. And the minority are in the position of the Kaisers that own the lake bed. So while Duke has the authority, Is that in the record anywhere? It is, Your Honor. Uh, and it was taken up by the, uh, it was taken up by the appellate court. The Court of Appeals noted it. Uh, but but in, order, in, order, in order to do that, uh, one would have to uh, have all the different conveyances of all of Lake Norman in the record. Is that in the record? The, all the conveyances like Norman are not in the record, but the Court of Appeals did note, and I'm just reading from the Court of Appeals here, that the majority of the owners sold in fee simple. How, what was that based on? Whatever the, the, the site that the, the Court of Appeals uh, relied upon, I, I don't know as we sit here today. I, don't, I, don't, I can't cite you to the record where it says that. Court of Appeals, for some reason, relied on that fact and stated on page 3 of the Court of the, the Appellate Decision. So... What the Court of Appeals did here, answering that question, is to state what I would contend is an extension of existing law, not new law, by saying that unless an easement explicitly states otherwise, an easement holder may not permit strangers to the easement agreement to make use of the land other than for the use and benefit of the easement holder without the consent of the landowner where such use would constitute additional burdens on the Soviet tenement and they cited that to the restatement of property. That's longstanding black-letter law and the law in most jurisdictions, as the Court of Appeals said. One way to look at that is there are two exceptions. One would be where the easement explicitly states otherwise. You, you, the burdened or the dominant tenement could then allow strangers to do, it, do so. And the other exception would be where the landowner consents. With, re with regard to the easement explicitly stating otherwise, Court of Appeals found, and, and we can look at the easement ourselves and note, that it does not state otherwise. It, it doesn't state that strangers to the easement agreement will be allowed to put it to use. As to the issue of consent, while Mr. Kaiser and his predecessors permissively allowed, permissively allowed some use of their property, consent is another question altogether. In fact, Duke, twice in its brief, page 11 and page 3, says that not only did the third-party owners not seek the consent of the Kaisers and their predecessors, they did not receive it. And that's in the record as well at page, on Doc X at page 244 and 251, paragraph 73 and paragraph 81, respectively, the third-party owners say, we neither, neither we nor our predecessors sought nor received the consent of the Kaisers to put the docks in. Uh, Counselor, um, I'd like to draw your attention back. You mentioned the restatement, um, uh, and so uh, I'd really like to have a case. You, you basically said it was black-letter law, uh, but uh, the restatement is not black-letter law. Could you please point me to a case? Yeah, I would point to Love and Be, be Crisp, uh, Your Honor, that said that, it, that it's a, a non-party to an agreement another dominant tenement, because that's the key. You have a survey tenement, a dominant, a dominant tenement, and you have to identify the dominant tenement in the underlying agreement. Otherwise, it, it, you could never do it. In fact, the Love and Crisp uh, Court said, potentially it's the entire United States that you could look at, that might, the, the current, the name dominant tenement might have property elsewhere. So Love and the Crisp certainly says that, uh, and that is the case that the Court of Appeals used to now go a little further and say not just extra property owned by the same owner of the dominant tenement, but other don potential dominant tenant holders. And along those lines, I'd like to point out to the Court, uh, which is a related matter, that 
in its judgment, the trial court here didn't say that the easement that Duke enjoys as the do dominant tenement, it's within the scope of that easement, within its authority to allow third parties to use it. It actually conveyed fee simple to the third parties. That's what the judgment actually says. And Duke says, well, it's necessary and desirable for us to be able to allow third parties to have docks there. It's, it's for their use and benefit because we have to facilitate recreational usage under the FERC license, which, which it says. But that's not what the trial court did at all. It didn't facilitate recreational use, usage. It granted title to the third parties, and this is in the record at page 555. It ousted the Kaisers. That's the word that the trial court used. It ousted the Kaisers from any property interest. It called what it did a deed of conveyance and said it shall be registered under General Statute 1-228 and Rule 70 of the Rules of Civil Procedure, both of which go to vesting title in others from the court. So that's what this trial court did. It didn't say, well, third parties, y'all can use that easement under due because it's broad enough. It said, no, you own the property. You own the property, and the Kaisers don't anymore. They don't own it. Uh, that's but yes, sir. If they if they abandoned the dams and the water drained away, that argument wouldn't work anymore, right? So it's not like the court was actually saying that Duke has anything other than what the easement conveyed to it. Would you agree with that? The trial court? Yes. Actually, the trial court is saying, it says, has said in its judgment, the Kaisers are no longer owners. It doesn't matter if the, if the uh, water goes uh, drained away. In that hypothetical, if that were to happen, these third parties now own that land, 280 acres, in fee simple. The trial court took away, ousted the Kaisers from 280 acres completely, without reservation. That's what it says in the, that's what it says in the judgment. Can, can you point us to the language you're looking at? I yes, mean, sir. I would certainly agree that the trial court ousted the Kaisers from that portion, that small portion of 2,400 square feet that they had taken from uh, what the trial court found to be the easement. Uh, where is that language you're talking about? So if you go to page uh, two, 555 in the record, and this is the fifth page of the trial court's judgment in paragraph 3C, paragraph 3C on that page, the trial court said title to and to each and every identified lot owned by the third parties in existence now or hereafter, added, modified, modified, otherwise placed, appurtenant thereto, or above the Kaiser submerged property, which are permitted by Duke as a part of Duke's scope of authority, including, without limitation, docks, piers, any other kind of structure you could possibly imagine, said all of that, last line of that paragraph, tract is hereby quiet in the names of the Schmidt, Shepherds, and the property owners and their respective heirs, successors, and signs. <coughs> Next paragraph, 5.3D, defendants and their successors, my clients, in interest are ousted from any real property interest or claim or claim of trespass or for rents uh, in the lots of the Schmidt's. It quieted title into the third parties who were strangers to the agreement in the first place. Essentially what the trial court did is to say, despite the fact that the Kaiser grandparents, those are the pre original predecessors, despite the fact that they conveyed a limited interest in their land, retained fee simple, despite that, underneath that easement, it's permissible to convey the rest of their interest, fee simple in its entirety, to third parties who were never contemplated, known, or stated in the underlying agreement. Well, the Thereby paragraph goes on to say permitted by DEC within its scope of authority. Right, Your Honor. But um, if you would look at the attachments starting at page 577 in Exhibit A, it lists all the homeowners, all the properties, but there's no meets and bounds description of where those docks are or those structures are. It just says the property. The only way this can be read is it's, it's, the, it's in its entirety. I suppose someone could go back after the fact and try to figure that out. But if the docks had moved, well, it doesn't even say that. It doesn't restrict it to that. On this spreadsheet, which lists every single owner, it simply conveys the property to them. 
And the only way that can really be read is that the, the Kaisers don't own it anymore. But even if that weren't so, even if you could somehow say that this document was clear and, and had meets and bounds descriptions for each owner, even if you could say that, it would still deprive the Kaisers of any right of entry in that area. And under the Hundley-Michael case, it says that a servient tenement can't be excluded. The servient tenement can never be completely excluded. What can happen, what can happen is they can have their rights modified by what they were doing, but you can't say you never can enter because that would be fee simple. So there's another case that says you can't do what this trial court did. Aren't you asking this court to engage in a strained construction of this in light of the clear, unambiguous language of the easement? I don't think so, Your Honor. The clear, unambiguous language of the easement is that Duke has the right, under the 760 line, under the 760 line, has the right to treat the property in any way that it deems fit, right, just and necessary. It, the plain language of that easement does not say, and it would have to, including to convey rights thereunder to third parties. It would have to say that. But it's conveying the rights under its easement as it deems necessary in context with and in conjunction with the clear and unequivocal language of the easement. Which doesn't say anything about third parties. There's no mention in the easement whatsoever or contemplation that they're going to sell shoreline lots. In fact, I, I, I think we could probably all agree that nobody thought that was going to happen. That, I mean, it was just a lake out in the middle of nowhere. Are you suggesting that the easement language would need to address exceptions uh, expressly and in doing that contemplate the ones that you are conceiving for us and all others that could conceivably be considered? Yes. Yes, I am, because it's a conveyance of a property interest. And, and has to be specific. And I'm in agreement with what the Court of Appeals said on that very point, that it would have to be explicit in the agreement itself. That, that's the Court of Appeals language, and I believe that this court should uphold that determination so that when people in the state of North Carolina enter into agreements for the conveyance of real property, whether that be an easement or fee simple, that they agree to everything that they need to agree on or everything they intend to agree on. Uh, because this easement is clear on its face. I, we had reasons to argue that uh, ambiguity. Court of Appeals has decided that. If it's unambiguous on its face, what Duke Power enjoys in this easement as the dominant tenement is set out in clear and plain language, and it says nothing about conveying the right to third parties but docks or structures. And I'd like to point out to the court, just to be clear and agree with Mr. Parker, points to page 222 of the record, that's a house. And if the court would look at uh, the record at 541, the court would see that the, there's a series of photographs that these aren't just docks that you might think of that you jump off in a little pond or something. These are structures. Essentially what has happened here is third parties have used their, the license or the permission uh, that they've gotten from Duke to build a dock to build extravagant structures that essentially constitute living spaces on property owned by the Kaisers because their grandparents decided not to sell in fee simple, which is another point the Court of Appeals made, is there is, in fact, a difference. There is going to be a difference in the state of North Carolina law between an easement appurtenant, which this is, and a conveyance and fee simple. And we are at the edge of that difference. We are right up on the edge. It's one of those cases that aligns perfectly to determine what the law should be. Even when, even when an easement holder, a dominant tenant such as Duke, enjoys virtual plenary power over a piece of real property, it does not hold it in fee. That's what the Court of Appeals has said. There are still some rights. I believe I heard Duke's counsel say those rights are valuable. How could they be valuable if now the trial court, in its judgment, in its order of summary judgment, has completely removed, completely removed any rights 
that the Kaiser has, family has over it. Quieted title, ousted my clients under a claim of title. There, there are no rights anymore that my client owns. Zero, none. And I think the Court of Appeal, though, that didn't address that point head on, a plain reading of, of the judgment of the trial court shows that's exactly what it has done. And again, that goes to the construction. You, you just said to the extent that the Court of Appeals doesn't expressly say that, nonetheless, you want us to construe it in such a way that it expands to what you would have us to see. Isn't that an unwieldy construction going forward with others that may look at this decision the way you would want us to look at it? I, I actually, Your Honor, respectfully would say it would be the other way around if the Court of Appeals wasn't upheld. Because I know as a practice attorney who views these kinds of deeds, I would have no idea what to tell a potential servient tenant client. So should I convey an easement? What do I have to put in there to ensure that I can still enjoy, say, I'm going to give an easement for the power lines. Can I still farm? I, I have no idea what to tell them if, it, if we're not restricted to the four corners of the document. If, if a potential client says, does this mean that my neighbor could come in and use my land for some reason? If I give, if I give this, this dominant tenement uh, rights on an easement, I, I'd say, I don't know. I, I, I don't know because it's not clear under North Carolina law whether, whether if it's silent as to conveyances to third parties, whether or not that will be upheld. So I, I would respectfully uh, just disagree with Your Honor and ask, say that it goes the other way, that we need the rule promulgated by the Court of Appeals here, its central holding, this, this rule that is promulgated is, is a rule that should be upheld, a rule that we need in North Carolina to make it clear to, to property owners who are considering offers to convey easement, easements of pertinent. It, it, it's, it's necessary. Now, Your Honors, uh, respectfully say, subject to your questions, I would like to yield the rest of my time to Mr. McTeer, who is prepared to talk about at matters of navigability, at public use doctrine, and riparian rights. I, I have a couple of questions. Yes, sir. Um, so what we're trying to do, I think, is determine the intent of the parties to the, to the easement. Um, I think you would concede that the necessary and desirable language is very broad. I do. Uh, you are essentially saying that we should follow the Court of Appeals and, and read into it a requirement that if Duke was going to grant any interest to any third party, uh, that it had to have negotiated for that, and that, that had to be reflected in the language of the easement. It's not, correct? I would say not read in, but it would have to be there for Duke to have that right. So. Um, Two things strike me about the, the Lovin case. Uh, one, the language of the easement in that case, it seems to me, uh, is much narrower than what's at issue here. And the second thing is that Lovin uh, was decided uh, 17, well, I don't want to try math, but 1978. Correct. All right, so uh, was there anything in North Carolina law at the time that this easement that was entered into that would put Duke on notice that the broad, necessary, or desirable language would exclude any kind of conveying any kind of interest to a, a third party? Well, I, th I think that uh, in the same way that, um, yes, there was. And it's a case, I believe, that Duke has cited, Carolina Ports versus Bowman, uh, at, at 229 NC 682. That's a 1949 case. Uh, <coughs> And, and that's a case where the Serbian tenant tenement put a movie theater in, in, in a power line easement. And the, the Supreme Court said in that case, well, that's an, that's an inconsistent use. That's an inconsistent use. And these are longstanding matters of real estate law. Uh, an inconsistent use has to be strictly construed. It has to be strictly applied. And in that case, it was. So... Loving versus crisp is not really anything new. It, it's, it's applying longstanding law to a fact pattern that's unique in that moment. Because that's water springs. You know, one, the dominant tenement there had the right to put a water line over the Serbian tenement's land, take water out of the spring to feed parcel A, and it started feeding parcel B. So I believe that that case is not unique. It's not a shock. It's, it doesn't allow 
a dominant tenement to simply use it for purposes that aren't spelled out. The bottom line of all that, I think the simplest way to say that is, it's got to be in the easement because it's a property right, it's a conveyance of a property right in the same way that a conveyance of fee simple requires a meets and bounds description or some other description with a natural monument so it can be clearly seen. You can't color outside the lines. So I don't, I don't see how Duke could have been surprised being there's a long line of power company cases which the power companies take the position that a, a use is inconsistent because it's not allowed. It's, it's not, there's no, there was no allowance in the Carolina power case versus Bowman for the, the subservient tenement to throw up a movie theater in the middle of the, of the, of the easement. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Mark. Good morning, Your Honor. It's Tom Mateer for the appellee. And, and may it please the court. Justice Morgan, if, if I may address your first question uh, in this matter, which is why should we even address navigability at, at this point? And, Your Honor, this is a, a case in progress. I don't think you should because this court's already addressed it. Right. The doctrines um, and tests before this court are, are the longstanding. Uh, this court in Guathme held it's not the ebb and the flow of the tides. It's not the lunar tides test. All these different tests that this court has seen. It's navigability in fact. Fact. Fact is the operative word. And the court of appeal specifically looked at the record and said, look, there's no, there are no facts in front of us to establish navigability. The uh, Bowman case, Bowman versus Woodlake Partners, it's a one-issue case. Eight pages. One issue. Lots of facts. And you... To establish navigability and whether or not the public trust doctrine applies, you have to look at the stream before the structure was put on there, before the dam was put on there. In that case, in Bowman versus the Lake Partners, the uh, creek, Cranes Creek, they held to be not navigable, in fact, and they took a very in-depth look at that creek pre-impoundment. Just because people can put boats on the reservoir that's called Lake Norman, does not establish, in fact, the navigability test. Now, that's, that's just for the, the boating portion. It has nothing to do with the actual structures because this court in uh, Steel Creek Development versus Smith found that even structures floating over someone else's property in Lake Wiley was a trespass. So as, as far as the structures go, the public trust would not touch on that issue. It would only go to our claims for the boating trespass. So, uh, Your Honor, to answer your question, no, you do not need to address it. You have addressed it. There's cases on point that say, look, here's the test for navigability. This is a summary judgment case certified under Rule 54B. We had to appeal based on the easement language, but that issue technically hasn't even been resolved yet. That is for the trial court. Does and Lake Norman satisfy the statutory definition of navigability? Uh, no, Your Honor. It, it does not uh, satisfy that because if you look at the, the test, it's before impoundment was the Catawba River at that point a navigable waterway. Now it's interesting to note that Duke has taken, its predecessor has taken a previous position that Lake Norman wasn't navigable. Now that was under the federal view, but they, I believe, may have beat this court in establishing the navigability in fact portion. That's what analysis they went. So I know that case is not binding, but when that court took a factual analysis of the area that is now Lake Norman, that, that court held, no, it's, it's not navigable. Now, again, not binding on this court, but it's interesting. When you take a factual look, the navigability simply does not apply. And all we're asking is to have a day in court to go and try this case. Maybe the jury, maybe you know, Duke's got the best lawyers in the world to convince it's uh, not navigable, and then, then it is. Maybe so. But we at least have a chance to say, You've got to look, in fact, take a look at the, at the property before the impoundment of the waters. Really, all we're asking this, this court to do is do exactly what the Court of Appeals did, send this case back down on trial on the merits. And, uh, Your Honor, the, the public trust doctrine, to the extent they, they raise it, just to give a quick backdrop of that, it's a doctrine that says the state has title to lands. Now, it's important. And the Bowman case looks at this, and, and this court in Wathby looks at it. It's all about the original ownership of the waterways. As soon as William Hooper, Joseph Hughes, and John Penn 
signed the Declaration of Independence for this great state, all the waterways that were already navigable belonged to the state, right? That's why you have to look at what point in time did North Carolina hold in the public trust. At the time of signing the Declaration of Independence and at the time of signing that easement that's, on, uh, that's in the record, that land was dry land owned by my client's predecessors. That was farmland. It was supposed to be his inheritance. Uh, again, Your, Your Honors, we just ask that you send this case back down to let us try the issue of navigability. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Chief Justice Newby, I'd like to start with a question that you asked, which is, where in the record does it say the majority of property owners received, uh, gave Duke uh, a easement versus fee simple ownership? It's not there. Um, I've gone through the record. Maybe I was, my eyes were glazed, but I will tell you what there is there that I saw. And the record at page 33, paragraph 2 of the Kaiser's counterclaim against Duke Energy, uh, it asserts that most of the transfers were by easement rather than fee simple. But if you go to the record at page 38, Duke Energy denied that allegation. So it's simply nothing more than an allegation without any proof by the um, plaintiffs, uh, any proof by the Kaisers, but what's more importantly is that's all extrinsic evidence. And we heard counsel for the Kaisers point out the importance of looking at the four corners of the instrument. And that is exactly right. If we are, we should not be getting into extrinsic evidence as to uh, what was conveyed to whom, by when, how much. None of that is relevant. You have to look at the plain and unambiguous language, which again, uh, we, I, it, when it jumps out at the end of the clause the, of the conveyance, in any manner deemed necessary or desirable by Duke Power Company, we believe that clause is applicable to all of the rights that are granted under the easement including the right to grade, the right to treat, um, the right to maintain water flowage. Now, the second point that I would like to make in connection with this extrinsic evidence issue is that the Court of Appeals really did create a very artificial rule that is not based in precedent. Um, in the uh, Court of Appeals opinion in paragraph 29, it states that third parties not mentioned in the easement are strangers to the easement. So it appears to be creating this artificial rule that you have to name everybody under the sun who might be walking into your store by an easement to cross somebody else's property. Um, and then the Court of Appeals opinion goes on to say in paragraph 27, unless an easement explicitly states otherwise, an easement holder may not permit strangers to the easement agreement to make use of the land other than for the use and benefit of the easement holder. Well, that supplants the plain and unambiguous language of the easement. That is what has to be considered. And moreover, uh, it leads me into yet another point, is Duke Energy directly benefited from this easement. And their um, original license to operate this facility from 1958 makes clear that Duke Energy not only has to account for power generation, but other beneficial uses, including recreational purposes. That is what these docks do, and it is far more efficient um, for the uh, property owners to be creating their own docks to pay for those as opposed to Duke Energy having to exercise its easement right to place the docks there at the company's expense. The, in essence, this benefits Duke Energy to have access to this lake for recreational purposes as required by its license, a license that was in place prior to 1961 when the easement was issued. Now, with regard to navigability, 
Um, let me just first of all say, Duke's attorneys are not t talking out of both sides of their mouths. There is a clear difference between navigability under federal law and navigability under state law that gives rise to the public uh, uh, trust doctrine. And I would cite this court to Fishhouse versus Clark, quote, any waterway, whether man-made or artificial, which is capable of navigation by watercraft, constitutes navigable water under the public trust doctrine of this state. The state of the authority for the Court of Appeals is in disarray. Thank you. Thank you, Thank Counsel. You, Thank you, everyone.